Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Michelle Margolis. She is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Her newest book is From Politics to the Pews, How Partisanship and the Political Environment Shape Religious Identity. One of the most substantial divides in American politics is the God Gap. Religious voters tend to identify with and support the Republican Party, while secular and less religious voters generally support the Democratic Party. Conventional wisdom suggests that religious differences between Republicans and Democrats have produced this gap with voters sorting themselves into the party that best represents their religious views. Michelle Margolis boldly challenges this notion, arguing that the relationship between religion and politics is far from a one-way street that starts in the church and ends at the ballot box. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Michelle Margolis. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you, I, I'm one of those people that has a tough time at cocktail parties because I'm fascinated by religion and politics, which makes me sometimes an unwelcomed party guest, but it makes me the ideal reader of your <laughs> politics to the pews, how partisanship and the political environment shape religious identity. Of course, not relevant at all to contemporary <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I'm sorry that I wrote something so separate from what's going on today in society. Are you ever like, why didn't I work on Proust or something? <laughs> Then no one would want to talk to me at parties. Here, sometimes people, you know, I either get everyone wants to talk, some people want to talk to me and won't shut up, and the other people are like, oh, you work on religion and politics. I'll go the other way. I'll go back to the punch bowl. <laughs> so it's interesting. You're, this, there, there's a sort of common perception, which is bears some truth, right? That, that religious convictions drive politics and have for, you know, in this country, you know, probably since its inception, that people's religious convictions will drive how they vote, how they behave, or at least affect it. But you're saying that while that's not necessarily untrue, what people don't suspect is it actually is working the other way around, right? That actually partisan identity is now shaping to some degree how many people fall out religiously in their lives. Yeah. And I appreciate you starting with that caveat, because I think the thing I get the most pushback on is well, of course, religion affects politics. And the answer is yes, absolutely. Religion affects politics. I have no doubt about that. But if we think about how and why religion affects politics, if we think politics is also affecting your religion, your religious beliefs, how often you go to church, which is the focus of, of my research, whether you even identify with a the faith, then it seems like it makes intuitive sense that religion's influence is going to be even larger. So if I'm a pro-life Republican and I'm going to church in part because I'm a Republican, then of course I'm going to be mobilized into the pro-life movement. And so that that is definitely an example of you might be mobilized in church. Religion is affecting politics. But if you're in church because you are a Republican and maybe because you're pro-life, then that that makes us as researchers kind of question just how much of religion is doing the work? Or is religion able to seem so strong in politics, in part because people are selecting into and out of? If we had a bunch of uh, religious Democrats still attending evangelical churches, you know, the relationship between evangelicalism and Trump support would look much smaller. And our story about evangelical supporting Trump would look very different, say. Yeah, you know, where your thesis a couple of years ago became sort of intuitively, uh, intuitively kind of came onto my radar. It was, I, I watch a lot of cable news, which probably says <laughs> pathological about me. But I noticed, you know, on Fox, people like Greg Gutfeld or, or Essie Cup, who is on CNN, who are conservatives and not religious, you find them defending religion a lot, right? And, and, and sort of weighing in on the war on Christmas, right? 
and liberals like you know say uh, Kirsten Powers or other people that that there are lots of that are religious and observantly religious on a on a network like MSNBC just don't talk about it that much right the, the, the discourse is just not the, so even even on the sort of specials they run you know like on on Fox or MSNBC you see one one sort one network has a lot of exposés on religion and values and the other just doesn't right yeah and I think that that's really important um, as part of the explanation for why this is happening is of course there are religious Democrats and there's not religious Republicans. That is absolutely still the case. But that's not necessarily what we see out in the world, right? If, if we as individuals are making religious decisions and taking cues and we're looking at the world around us, we see uh, secular liberals taking a secular stance. We're seeing religious conservatives taking a religious stance. And the secular Republicans and the religious Democrats are actually pretty quiet on the religious front. So you're not getting mixed messages. If you're watching cable news, if you're reading the newspaper, uh, Louis Bolche at one of the CUNY colleges has great work showing just how much um, there's been a divide in the uh, how how the parties are shown being on the religious and secular dimension, that it's not just that Republicans are seen as the religious folks, it's that Democrats are seen as secular. And we know that that's not true. There's lots of people who um, are religious and attend church and, and, and the, the Democratic Party is not made up solely of seculars and atheists and agnostics. Uh, but that's the perception that you get. And so then when it comes time to make religious choices, you might say, well, I'm a Democrat, so I guess I'm not really that religious. Or if I'm going to go to church, I'm going to hear all of these messages that I don't really like. So I'm going to either not go or find a find a very specific church that meets my needs, which is another form of politics shaping religion is, okay, well, it's important to me to be religious, but I'm going to find a church that works for me. I'm going to shop around till until I feel comfortable politically in the pews. It's fascinating because in 1950, right, I've, there's a lot of literature, like sociological research, right, that whether I went to church, if I was a sort of white Protestant, and I went to church three or four times a month, or if I didn't go to church at all, that was not a reliable predictor of whether or not I was going to vote for Eisenhower. Not just, at all. Not, it, was not, it, was, it was not a helpful... Now it's like insider trading information. Right, right. 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 I mean, that's for, for white Americans, that's the single best prediction. Right, right. And I'm, yeah, as, as I, I said offline before we started this podcast, I'm in Alabama right now conducting some research. And it's pretty amazing when you talk to folks and you get to know them and um, they say, I go to this Baptist church and I'm really involved. I ask additional questions, but, you know, for the most part, I haven't been surprised by their politics, you know, because they are so tightly correlated in a way that just 40, 50 years ago, that was not the case. Now, you talk about how basically there are people make decisions by and large in, in Western society. You sort of if you're raised in some sort of religious tradition, you by the time you're adolescent, right, you wind up late adolescence you wind up pushing away pushing back and let you go to college you get some independence and you wind up sort of moving migrating away from that tradition but what's interesting at the same time that you're migrating away from that tradition your partisan identity you say is hardening and you have these interesting comparative charts where where as the religious tradition as you're becoming more distinct from your family of origin religiously you're actually probably hardening more often, their partisan identity. And so if that partisan identity is Republican and, you know, you are, you know, in your early 30s and getting get married and you're thinking about having a kid and you're thinking, well, I mean, where are we going to get the kid baptized? You're going to you're going to probably go to church if you're Republican. If you're a Democrat, more often than not, you're going to Opt, you're going to stay one of the nuns, right? The non-identified yeah. people. I mean, and again, there are exceptions to the rule, but but the, but by and large, if you're a betting person, that's the way you're going to yes, bet. Yes, that's so. That's a great way of putting it because I think what's hard about doing this kind of large-scale quantitative analysis is not everyone fits neatly into the story. There's lots of people who never become less religious in adolescence. There's people who are raised without religion. There's so many things, but by and large. Um, we know from the sociology literature that it's just natural. You're not religious in young adulthood or you're, I shouldn't say not religious. You are less religious than you were raised in young adulthood for a lot of reasons. Um, usually not having to do with politics, just having to do with life and having other priorities. Um, but then, yeah, it comes time you have to make, and at that time you're forming your political identity and then it becomes time to make a religious decision. And yeah, lots of Democrats come back to church. Some Republicans don't, but if I was at a, if I had to put $5 on a bet and I knew your party ID, I would make a guess about, you know, and would probably be right about 
whether or not how you were going to raise your children. Um, and to me, that's a that's a very important part of the story is that, you know, we know from sociologists that your religiosity ebbs and flows over the course of your life. And a big thing that pulls people back to religion is having a kid, right? So all of a sudden you have this kid. And as you said, where are we going to baptize this kid? Are we going to baptize this? Kid? I guess that's the first question, right? Are we going to baptize this kid? Where are we going to baptize this kid? Being down here in Alabama, talking to folks, even if they're not talking about politics, church shopping is, is really real, right? People pick religious communities for all sorts of reasons. Um, and so the fact that people are then making decisions of, do I want to be part of a religious community? What kind of religious community? How involved of a religious, how involved do I want to be? If I was a betting person, I would say the Republican's going to end up being more religious than the, than the Democrat, even if before having kids, they were similarly not religious. It's, it's funny. I have a friend who's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, and I, I, I was visiting with him a couple of years ago. And he told me at that time, I think he was in the statistically most churched zip code in the country. Oh, wow. Like that. And he was still getting flyers like, you know, a couple of times a month. New church opening up down the street. You know, we got a jungle gym. We got this. We got, you know, smoke. I mean, like that it, that it doesn't the fact that the market's saturated actually creates more oh well we can well our, you know our youth pastor can you know shoot sparks out of his eyes and you know you can you know it's it, it, it like creates more of a demand exactly exactly like, it doesn't it, the economic rules don't, <laughs> don't seem to <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I know. I totally agree. Just when you think that there can't be another church, uh, another one just appears. Yeah. Now, you, you, in your research, you, you note something that I found fascinating because there's a difference between partisan identity and ideological identity, right? If somebody conservative, moderate, liberal, that sort of ideological identity, that is much more malleable research shows right whereas so i i might say this this accounts for something like the reagan democrats right where people who reagan wins 40 states or something or 45 when democrats outnumber republicans two to one at the time i think like and yet those people don't change and become republicans they just vote for reagan consistent like so so that so you focus in on partisan identity because that is something that is much more consistent and sort of ossifies over time. It's not as many. Exactly. And I think that this is something um, that's a little controversial out in the, the non-academic world because no one likes to be told uh, that they don't have a consistent ideology or their beliefs, their political beliefs don't matter. But we know from lots of research that your party identification is strong. It's stable. It affects your political attitudes. A lot of, a lot of research, great research has shown that people update their attitudes to be consistent with their party ID rather than the other way around. Um, and there's really great work now coming out by people like Liliana Mason at at um, University of Maryland, she should absolutely be on the show. Uh, that's all about your social identity. That's so much of your of the of the the lack of civility in American politics today. It's less. It's not about uh, Democrats and Republicans differing on ideology or policy positions. It's just that now we have these social identities that are wrapped up with our other identities, whether it's being black and Democrat or secular and Democrat or being Republican and evangelical or being a Republican and a Tea Party, that these have become so merged together that basically when you insult one part of me, you're insulting multiple parts of me. And it becomes this sort of, um, it allows for a boxing match to, to, emerge, so to speak, that so much of politics is now about winning and losing. And that's about because partisanship is no longer, well, this is the party that reflects my attitudes. It's that this is the team that I'm on. And if it's the team that I'm on, I want my team to win. I want my, I want the other team to lose. I want to do what my teammates are doing. And that's where we see so much of what's going on in American politics today, that partisanship as an identity that we hold, like we hold other identities, um, whether it's your being a woman, whether for my case, it's being a professor or being a mother, whatever it is, that being a Democrat or Republican is an identity that matters to me. And in this case, what I'm showing is that, yeah, and that identity is driving another identity, which is, you know, your religious identity. Yeah, so it seems like we're much more tribal than ideological now, right? I mean, and you see this, I think, isn't this reflected with Trump's election? You look at, this is fascinating. I love that there these things are studied and they're supposed to this, but before Trump, was elected republicans had a high had a more favorable view of the nfl than democrats did that has flipped uh you know the, the thing with russia republicans had had a less favorable view of russia that now that's flipped. now democrats who are less antagonistic now the russians the russians the russians are coming right you, you have things like free trade, uh, free right? trade I was gonna say tariffs right? yeah tariffs, tariffs free trade all these things 
are are so malleable, but it is like, hey, as long as you know we're we're beating the libs or you know we're sticking it to the Trump to the Trump to the you know, that th- these things are so uh, 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 what does uh, Zizek call them the philosopher antagonists? Yeah. Everything's, right? just- Everything's just driven not so much by conflicting ideas, but this just antagonism. Like we want to beat them. Absolutely, yeah. And if you want to beat them, if we're changing our attitudes about whether Russia is a friend or foe, or we're changing whether we watch the NFL or not. Um, why would we want to sit in pews with people who aren't like us? Or maybe it's a, it's very exciting to go sit in. It's like, oh, well, I can go to pew and I can go to church and it'll be like going home. I'm going to feel very comfortable there. So I actually think given everything else we're seeing in the political environment, in some respects, what I'm saying is wholly unsurprising, totally expected. It's like, well, that just seems like a logical a logical thing, given all the other decisions um, and updating we do on account of, of our politics. You know, it's like, well, why do I want to go spend a Sunday morning with a whole bunch of people who don't, you know, look and act and talk like me and think like me when, you know, I, I can instead choose to spend my time in a way where I don't have to be challenged. I'm not hearing messages that don't comport with my pre-existing views. You know, that's really, that's a really pleasant way to spend your life, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. The human brain doesn't love cognitive dissonance. We do right? not so, love cognitive dissonance. So it's interesting because if your research is right, that you, you often hear, you know, for instance, there was that after Romney lost, there was the, the, the famous Republican autopsy about needing to do outreach to minorities and, and people that are outside the traditional Republican tribe, which that... I mean, a lot of Republicans saying that wasn't taken very seriously or Democrats saying, hey, we got to you know, talk more to values voters. And, but I mean, weirdly, wouldn't the success strategy maybe to be to be more tribal? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, hey, hey, this is, you know, rather than try to like reach out, like because you even have some fascinating research where like there are flyers, right, that you can show people and, that have like a religious theme and the Republican likes the flyer, the Democrat. Do- I'm fascinated that it bears out this realistically. Yeah, no, I think I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that that's what we I don't think Trump was doing anything to appeal across aisles or make a broader umbrella under which people can sit. And he was successful, um, you know, arguably. Uh, he won the election. Sorry, I, I wasn't trying to be snarky when I say arguably. I mean, he did lose the popular vote. So when we he say- did lose the popular vote. <laughs> He, he, you know, did what he needed to do to, to get into office. So, you know, clearly that strategy worked. Um, and talking to folks down here in Alabama, things really, it, you know, obviously Alabama is a very unique place. Um, but things seem to really resonate. You know, they, they feel very strongly about whether it's their religious values feeling under attacked or feeling like, uh, in particular, white Americans are now getting less than they deserve or that they're being discriminated against, you know? And so that's to me, very kind of traditional tribalism of who makes up the Republican base. It's white folks and religious folks. Um, and those messages seem to be resonating with white folks and religious folks. So seems like a winning strategy for now. You could debate whether that's a good long-term strategy when you think about demographic change over time, but at least for today, seems like a winning, a winning option. When you do these studies, like when people, when you see like the flyer study and things like that, and, and people reliably, you know, the Democrats reliably say, ew, I don't like that religious theme in the flyer and Republicans do. Are you like, ha, take that, you people that are skeptical about social science. It works. Oh, that's funny. No, although I actually was listening um, this morning, I was driving um, and I was listening to a podcast and there was a quote on it, which was great, where someone said, it's not rocket science. And then the guy said, no, it's harder. It's social science. <laughs> and I thought I was, I was driving in the car by myself. I was laughing hysterically. I'm sure the people driving next to me thought I was, you know, Looney Tunes. Uh, but no, I think it's really, you know, at the uh, I'm presenting a theory that doesn't apply to everyone. And then I try as best as I can to test that with data. And that means a mix of, of survey data that tracks people over time. So we're trying to take into account that certain people might just be, you know, you just might be more religious than me. And just like that is how we are hardwired. And that will, you know, so looking at us over time, rather than looking at different people at different points in time, I try to get it that way, running these experiments. And so I think, um, 
if I was being critical of my book, I would say, you don't have a silver bullet. You don't have this great piece of evidence that says like, this proves your point. But on the other hand, I think what's great about my book is I have tons of different data from different time periods in the US. Um, some of it survey data, some of it experimental, and it's all showing the same thing. You know, we're kind of, as my grandfather says, we're surrounding it. That it's like, well, once you have all these data put together, it's kind of hard to tell what else is going on here that explains all of these these different data, you know, results coming together um, and pointing in sort of the same direction. So I wouldn't necessarily say ha these skeptics, but I, I do appreciate um, that doing social science research, um, I've never done rocket science to know if it's harder, but it is it is very difficult to do. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like the I think about the the recent gerrymandering case in the Supreme Court and they were, you know, what I think it was Justice Gorsuch was saying, well, I mean, I'm skeptical about this, about how the, if this social science works and could it really draw districts? And I'm thinking, yeah, of course it works. Because they hired <laughs> social scientists to draw the gerrymandered districts that got the results that you're getting. <laughs> like the gerrymandered districts prove it works. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That is, yes. You got to love when someone makes their point for you without realizing it. <laughs> Now you and not just to say like to to echo your own defense of your book. I mean, you anticipate objections in every chapter, and you, you offer the qualifications. You 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 know, there's a, you have a whole chapter on African Americans who are the biggest outlier, right? Who are are exceptionally religious on the whole as a, as a group, and are the most reliable Democratic vote. Uh, although Trump says he's going to, it's funny. Uh, Trump strategist on MSNBC the other day was saying they're losing white college educated women and saying, "Well, we're going to make that gap up in places like African Americans." And I thought, <laughs> "Wow, that's ambitious." <laughs> but but I mean that is, I mean African Americans are tend to be very religious. But what what you know that that is intriguing is that. They like religious messages from Democrats, but not from Republicans. Yeah. They, they respond well to it. That, you know, and we have seen uh, Hillary Clinton's convention. There were some more forays into religious rhetoric and African-Americans respond well to that when it's on one end of the partisan scale and not from the other. Yeah, I think um, I think what's important to consider whenever, again, this is getting back to like doing good social science research. I think it's easy to say African-Americans are religious, so therefore they're going to be responsive to all religious messages, including re religious messages from the Republican Party. And what I find is um, Republic, uh, African-Americans, they go through this life cycle idea that they, they do become less religious in young adulthood. They become more religious in adulthood and they look like white Republicans. And there's a couple reasons for it that we don't need to get into here. But I do. But then I also, as you say, go on to show, OK, well, what happens when religion and politics is infused sort of on the left and on the right? And and how do how do. Um, what do black individual, black Democrats think about when they hear about religion and politics being merged? And what they see, what we see is they want to see it merge, but they want to see it on the left. And in fact, when you're asking them questions about should there be more or are you happy with how much there is, they're thinking about their own experiences. And we know from other research, people like Putnam and Campbell have noted black churches are far more political than even white evangelical churches. So if you're asking an African-American person, how much should pastors be talking about politics? How much should pastors be talking about politics? How much should, um, do you want politicians talking about faith? They're drawing again on their own experiences, which is they have pastors talking about politics all the time, but on the liberal end of the spectrum, they have candidates coming to their churches all the time campaigning, but they're democratic candidates. So to them seeing that linkage, they're having a very different experience than what you described at the beginning, which was, you know, seeing CNN versus MSNBC and seeing kind of this big divide between the religious and the secular and the parties in, in African Americans, religious experience, because many of them still attend predominantly black churches. Is for them, being a Democrat and being religious is not does not produce the same cognitive dissonance because their church experience, for the most part, is aligned with the Democratic Party. And so the assumption that, say, Trump can win African-American votes because they're highly religious and they might be conservative on some social issues, that's not necessarily going to play out because they're not responding to Republican religious messages in the same way as Democratic religious messages. Yeah. And just like for conservatives for republicans who are religious and, and hey we'll sort of kind of compromise our values to get ju things like judges right because that's something as a group we find crucial african-americans if it's regardless 
regardless if it's a more secular party, you're right. They're part of the organizing machines of the party. And also things like concrete things like affirmative action, funding for things that directly benefit the community. I mean, there's still the historical memory of people that, hey, it was the federal government that that desegregated things, right? Where, you know, you have states' rights, the federal government's bad. Well, if you're African-American, the federal government seems pretty good, you know, in, in recent historical memory. They've actually curbed oppression at the state level. So those kinds of things play out really differently. On Absolutely. Ground. And especially if you think about, yeah, Supreme Court justices, really important if you care about Roe v. Wade or things like that. But, you know, the Civil Rights Act and parts of the Voting Rights Act are up for debate today, you know. So if you're an African-American, um, which it's not even clear that African-Americans are actually very conservative on abortion anymore. That's sort of changed over time. Um, but even if they do care about social issues, there's also, well, these same people that you'd be putting in office that might do these conservative things on social issues, they also might be chipping away at the Voting Rights Act over time, you know, and that's still a huge issue, whether it's... Um, you know, people of color are the ones who are predominantly affected by things associated with the Voting Rights Act and whether it's things about voter ID laws, all that stuff. These are these are presumably not affecting wealthy white people, um, you know, who have no problem going to the polls and voting with their driver, you know, multiple forms of ID. And so uh, just considering that there are multiple reasons why someone can hold their beliefs and attitudes and not to assume, again, that religion's driving everything, that by virtue of being religious, you therefore have to have these conservative policy issues that therefore you're going to have to be Republican. African-Americans remind us that that's not always the case. Do you think, you know, I think so much of the kind of in late modernity, you know, we, we have this sort of fact value dichotomy we inherit from the Enlightenment and, and this idea that things like politics or religion are distinctive spheres. Does it seem like we're, at least in the United States, going back to something more like a pre-modern situation where, where I think like for most pre-moderns, a category like religion is difficult to to people wouldn't use the term the same way because the the whole social social political structure and metaphysical beliefs and rituals and group thing those are all just so such so mixed together they're not as discreet as we make them in late modernity are we kind of going winding back in some ways yeah i've never thought about it that way that's uh drawing on, you know, I'm going back into the recesses of my memory of, of, of these sorts of historical events. But yeah, no, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that uh, things are starting to meld and merge in a way that it's difficult to disentangle. And I don't know, I guess you can make the argument that maybe it was never easy to disentangle and we just chose to act like they were separate. Um, and whereas today, I think it's just absolutely impossible. Um, you know, you read the newspaper any given day and you see just how much those two things are combined and how they're both influencing one another, that can they truly be a separate sphere? You know, I've been asking pastors down here, do you talk about politics? And they say, absolutely not. I would never talk about politics. I tell people how to vote. I, I tell people to vote, but not how to vote. And then we start talking about seven. Turns out they're preaching on things that would be considered political all the time, right? But they're to them, they are religious things because they are from the Bible. They are biblically based, but they are absolutely political today. Um, and so it's, if, if that's the case, it's impossible for anyone to be preaching, um, anything from the Bible without it being turned to be political. I actually had a great conversation with a, with a pastor here today, two days ago, where he said that he got, uh, an angry email from one of his, his congregants because he gave what was he, what the congregant called a political sermon, but it was because the sermon was on compassion. It was, it was about, it was, it was about, you know, it was talking about the gospels. It's sort of hard to teach the gospels without talking about compassion, but the idea that compassion in a biblical sense has now become politicized where you have congregants being upset that, and accusing your, your pastor of, of, um, talking politics when you're talking about the gospel and being compassionate towards people. Yeah, I think it's impossible. Like these things are absolutely melded, right? It's, it's not clear to me what religious thing you actually can preach about today that's not seen as political if if talking about the gospel and compassion is now political. Compassion for social. <laughs> I mean, that was basically his res the, this congregant's response to which, you know, and, and this... Um, and this pastor, I think he's probably more moderate than the congregants, but he is no liberal snowflake by any stretch of the imagination. He's a Baptist pastor in rural Alabama. He's, you know, he's, he is what you would expect him to be. But he was like, I don't know what to do about this. If I can't preach loving thy neighbor and being compassionate, where, where does that leave us about what am I supposed to talk about on Sunday? Let's head right to Leviticus. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it, 
my friend and colleague Bill Bohr, who I do this other another podcast with, we actually did a podcast about your work, which is what your New York Times op-ed piece, which is what made me contact you. He was saying that he remembers in the '80s these biblical values things put out by the religious right, and he said, you know, it was it was of course you you couldn't say what candidate to vote for. You could just do issue profiles. He's like, not just abortion and and all these. He said, there was a thing about the Panama Canal. And he was like, well, where is that in the Bible? <laughs> everyone knows, everyone knows that the Apostle of John is... Uh, is pro-Panama Yeah, Canal. Is, is everyone knows, yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine? or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic. Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So Nietzsche says that every philosopher, every philosophy is the personal confession of the philosopher. Well, you're not a philosopher. You're a social scientist. I wonder, like, how did this how did this become a passion of yours? I mean, why? I mean, you do tell a little bit in the book about the story of the research, and, and which is interesting. But I mean, how did, why this? I mean, why this topic? Does it does it? Where did you come from? A religious background? I mean, is it is it political interests? Is it just like, hey, no one's doing this topic? <laughs> uh, so all of the above. So I actually, uh, so I'm Jewish. So uh, and I was raised um, in like a conservative issue household, uh, and and I actually got interested in um, in religion and politics when uh, the um, rabbi, who's a family friend said at, at Thanksgiving dinner that I I needed to to go up to the people. I went to UC Berkeley, so a very liberal place, um, a place that uh, has a lot of kind of pro-Palestinian movements. And I happened to be involved in an organization that was a very pro-peace movement that brought um, Jews and, and, and Muslims together. And and so that's, that's my political background on that front. And basically, I had this rabbi telling me, you need to go up to tell these people that the, tell these Palestinians and, and these pro-Palestinian protesters that, that, you know, these Palestinians are terrorists and just very what you do hear from hawkish, hawkish Jews um, when it comes to Israel. And I just remember being so shocked. How would you how would you lead in with that? Excuse me. Hi, how are you? I'm Michelle. You look lovely today. Do you know the Palestinians are terrorists? So it, it came up a Do little bit differently. Well, no, it was more like, and then can you pass the turkey? <laughs> well, and also, can you pass the brisket? Because it's a Jewish Thanksgiving. So there's both turkey and brisket. That sounds delicious. It was. It is. It's Brisket should be at all family holidays, regardless of, of religion. Um, anyway, and I, and it got me, you know, obviously I found the experience a little upsetting, but that sent me down the path of, of writing my honors thesis, which was on Jewish American voting patterns. Cause here's this guy who is actually incredibly liberal on everything else, but then it comes to Israel and there's sort of no, no room for dialogue and no room for pushback. And I don't want to generalize to anyone, but, but this one experience, but that got me thinking about when do Jews do deviate from being, um, reliably democratic. And so that was when I was looking in, I, there were, there were three dips in history, 1972, um, 1980 and 2004. And, and those were cases in which case it was Kerry going backwards, Kerry, Carter and McGovern, where, um, 
those candidates were seen seen as like pretty bad on Israel, so to speak. And so so the argument was basically Jews are Democrats and the candidate needs to be basically good enough on Israel. But if they're seen as bad, that's when we see some deviation. And so that's sort of how I got interested in religion and politics. Uh, I decided that um, I probably wanted to shy away from from working in an area where I felt like I had more of a, I want to be as unbiased as possible. And so I, I think I kind of shied away from wanting to continue down that road of working on, on Jewish voting patterns. Also, you know, Jews make up a very small percentage of the population <laughs> as such. Um, that's not necessarily the best strategy of getting an academic job. And you're not ruining your brisket at Thanksgiving. No, if you're, exactly. What are you working on? You're not talking about Jews and Palestinians. Exactly, and, uh, exactly. Like, I want to have peaceful, peaceful, it's called Shalom Bayit, peace in the home. I want to have peaceful family dinners and, and, and extended family dinners with family friends. So, yeah. And so, anyway, so I've always, I've been in, interested in religion and politics since since then. And then when I got to grad, this project um, came from my dissertation. And I just... I just felt like there was all the sociology literature about all these things that affect our religious choices, that we know religiosity waxes and wanes. We know our religious choices. There's this great work that basically shows as you become wealthier, you kind of move, quote unquote, up the religious food chain. So if you're born a Pentecostal and then you, be, you get, become a little bit wealthier, you might become a Baptist. And if you become a little wealthier, you might become a Lutheran. And then if you're at the, and then when you're super wealthy, you're an Episcopalian. Exactly. I mean, you can only aspire, right? Like, I mean, it's uh, like the dream in life is to be an Episcopalian. Yeah, exactly. And so if you aim high so and you miss, things, you at least become a Presbyterian. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's so much wonderful, rich literature in the sociology field uh, that I really... I was like, well, if all these things can affect our religion, why is political scientists, why are we assuming religiosity is fixed? We, we treat it as stable. We treat it as sort of exogenous, which means like it just kind of appears. We got it because our parents are religious. We are as, as religious and we do the same things that our parents do. There's no deviation over our lifetime. There's no accounting for who we marry and what our lifestyles are. And so given the fact that religion... There's so much research showing religion affects politics, religion affects politics, but we're treating this religion as this unmoved mover, that it's doing all of the work. And so for me, I was just like, well, maybe we should kind of poke at that and see if that really holds true. And it turns out, I don't think it does. That was a very long answer. No, that's no, 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 that's fantastic. And I think it is interesting that, that you, that it, it's funny because you think of the work of somebody like Max Weber, right? Who, who in, in light of Marx and some others, he's thinking, look, we've got too much Reduct, reductive thinking around religion, right? Like that, that religion needs to be studied more carefully. But what you're pointing to is almost another form of reductive study of religion, right? Like that, that it, it's sort of that it, it, it's only shaping what what it's putting out and not what it's taking in, and that, and that's you know these are all social realities are, are, are porous, right? I mean, unless you're like North Korea to close, well, I mean that's probably porous, but I mean unless you're a closed society, you can keep it a little less porous. <laughs> But, but generally in open societies, social groups, are, you know, whether they're religious or not, are, are incredibly porous and taking influences in from all sorts of Absolutely. And in that sense, you know, a lot of what I'm saying, obviously, I'm focused on the individual. Mine's a story about how individuals move throughout their religious lives and how politics can affect it. But we know, you know, there's great historical work about how theology has changed in response to, you know, it's we used to think that we... Uh, you know, there used to be a thought that we need to create heaven on earth before the second coming came. And so that's where the social gospel movement came from. But then all of a sudden, how do we deal with all of these, you know, Jewish and Irish immigrants who are doing all this, you know, this is Randall Balmer's argument. How do we handle all this, um, all these immigrants who are not necessarily making our lives easy about making heaven on earth? Well, now there's a new reading and it turns out we don't have to as a society create heaven on earth, Jesus is going to come before that, you know? And so changing from a pre-millennial and post-millennial, switching that around, that was very much a product of society and politics and, and immigration and who was there. If you believe the historical, you know, readings of, of some of the great historians who are, who are working in this field. Um, and so in that sense, it's like, we know, you know, full-on dogma and theology has sort of evolved and has responded to the world in which we live. And so if entire, you know, and that's, again, something that's difficult. Some people don't like to hear that because you want to think of your religion as being pure and and true and, and not, you know, not responsive to the outside influence. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's completely porous, both at the group level, at the um, and, and as well as at the individual level and the choices that we make, you know, I think it's really important. I'm, I'm a mother to a toddler and 
you realize having, and so I started this project long, long before that, but you realize having a kid is this really big deal where all of a sudden you're, you have to think about how do I want to raise that kid? Do I want to have to, is it so important to me that I go to church, but then on the way home have to say, well, we don't believe X, Y, and Z, or we need to caveat this or, you know, and it's like, you realize raising a, a human being is an incredible responsibility. And so it's not surprising that we're making religious decisions in a way, um, you know, whether it's returning to religion, because we want to instill them val- either whether it's values or your history, or, you know, just kind of generally making sure they're good human beings, there's a, and how you want to go about doing that. And you want to, you want to impart certain, certain, um, yeah, ideas and values that, that it's not surprising that your political values are going to come into play when making those decisions. Do you know Jonathan Haidt's work at all? I do, that, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, he says, he argues, right, that we have these sort of five moral taste buds, like compassion, fairness, a group solidarity, authority, respect for authority. And I think the fifth one is sort of purity. And his argument is that conservatives and liberals, whether they define it differently, right, both can proximately agree on compassion and fairness. I mean, they might disagree on if this government program is compassionate, but they can. But the conservatives have these sort of pre-modern taste buds left, the, the, the respect for authority, the 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 importance of in-group loyalty, the and, and this sort of purity, you know, sanctimony, like this sort of that this is the, the the sacred space and the sacred things. I mean, I wonder does that does that jive with your work in the sense of how you have kind of this alignment where these people that have these values for in group loyalty, a nostalgia about group solidarity and stuff tend to be on tend to be in religious circles and in in conserv you know Republican circles. And I wonder is is that where some of the interplay happens? Yeah. So I think I actually think. Um, at first blush, some of Haidt's work actually serves as a as an alternative explanation for my work, which is basically like, well, maybe certain people have this in-group loyalty um, or this kind of nostalgia that leads you to both be Republican and religious. So that's the alternative explanation. Um, and while plausible, I think um, the fact that my data show um, what happens in the 60s and 70s shows that that's not the case, right? So if it was always the case, that Jonathan Haidt's argument holds, or if, I shouldn't say Jonathan Haidt's argument can absolutely hold. That's but whether or not that's explaining what I'm finding, um, we would expect to see this sort of religious gap appearing even in the 60s and 70s, right? But the idea is that it emerged over time once the politicians have started sending di- divergent cues, right? And and um, you know obviously the parties have changed a lot um, in the last 50 years, but if we just thought that there was something about being a Republican or being economically conservative uh, and being religious and this kind of the, the taste buds for nostalgia, we would have expected to see this relationship happen at a much earlier time period. And instead we don't see it until the parties um, uh, we didn't see it until the parties have had diverged on questions about morality, about social issues um, about and where the Republicans were seen as okay, we're the religious party, and the Democrats were the less religious party. Would you say that your work could flesh out hate stuff in the sense that if you took it more sociological, like look, these things are more malleable, and it's not as innate. Maybe that there are psychological predilections, but these morph, and and that you can acquire just like you can acquire taste for food. You could acquire tastes for moral taste buds that you didn't have before. Absolutely. Right? I mean, we see we see all these people on Fox News, right? That used to be like Charles Krauthammer of recent Blessed Memory, who started off as a, liber- a, a sort of liberal and then became a, a neocon and conservative commentator. I mean, these things. Yeah, people absolutely. Do people do move, and and I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, I show some evidence in the book that uh, there's evidence, you know, that even your views about the Bible change. And I don't think that politics is making your views about the Bible change. I think that politics. Um, in making you be more rest, less religious. And if you're involved in a religious community, if you're hearing messages about the Bible, then we shouldn't be too surprised to learn that those people's attitudes eventually change over time. And so, yeah, if you're someone, um, you know, I don't think, you know, Robert Jones has this uh, thing about white evangelicals being nostalgia voters, you know, for instance. And, and you know, it's not clear to me that they were always nostalgia voters. They kind of now are nostalgia voters because 
that's what the rhetoric was about. You know, that Trump's basically saying we need to make America great again, that we need to, that things are not great. We need to, you know, he's playing on this idea that, and and I think that that resonates with some people, but I also think it probably makes some people more nostalgic. And so if you're someone who, by virtue of being a Republican, is going to church more and you're getting messages uh, that could that could definitely resonate and make you a little more conservative. It could make you a little more nostalgic. It could make you have these sort of taste buds. And and you know, if you're someone who goes to church a lot, then you are okay submitting to a certain extent. And so, therefore, maybe you are. You become more accepting of the idea of authority. Um, and so, I think that I think I think Jonathan Haidt's work is fantastic. But I think I think some of the things that are innate might not be as innate as as we think they are. There's always room. Um, person movement. So when you see evangelicals before Trump say that 77% or something say that, gosh, of course, somebody has to have high moral and spiritual character to be a good president. Whatever. And then they flip 77, 78% the other way and say, oh, of course, that's not important. You know, that, I mean, the, how do you, how do you, how does somebody that does work like you, I mean, what, how do you react to that? I, I, I mean, other, I mean, other than I would guess a gaping job, but <laughs> I mean, how does that gel with your work? Yeah, so so this is actually um, some of my new work. I've been asking people um, down here in Alabama. I've been talking to folks um, in a lot of places like Jack's, which is a, a, like a fast food chain where people go every day, like a Jack's and a Hardee's. I've been asking people that exact question. Um, and at first, I just took their answer and we sort of chatted about it. And now I'm actually asking a little bit more. Uh, and it seems like, again, this is not, this is just my my saying what other people are saying. A lot of people say to me, and I don't know if they're hearing this from Fox News. It sounds like you watch it more than than I do. So you might know if this is said. Numerous people have said to me, I had no problem with what Clinton did. My issue was that Clinton did it in the White House. And that's inappropriate. <laughs> and so, and again, I'm not, I, and, 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 but basically saying Trump's indiscretions were in the past, but they were also before he was president and that they at least what I'm hearing from people now is that they see this clear division. And again, as we talked about earlier, cognitive dissonance is something we try to avoid at all costs. And so whether or not, you know, it is, it is whether or not someone listening on this podcast thinks that that's a, thinks that that is a valid distinction is a way to say yes to one and no to the other. Uh, it does seem to be how numerous people completely unprompted. And again, these are small samples here because I'm, I'm not doing big interviews. I'm actually physically interviewing individuals one-on-one that that seems to be the narrative people are saying. And, and I don't know whether that means that in previous rendi- iterations of the question, they were, they were thinking about Clinton and now they're not like, you know, so maybe, or maybe it is pure, purely a partisan answer. Um, in which case, again, it gets back to this tribalism and all likelihood it is a combination of both or the tribalism leads you to come up with a narrative that allows you to say one was different than the other. Um, but again, partisanship's a hell of a drug. Um, and it seems like, uh, that's, that survey question has been amazing. So, so shocking to me that I've been asking folks about it down here and kind of pushing people about like, so why do you think, so you think it's fine that Trump did this? Did you think it was okay when Clinton did it? And then, and kind of getting their reaction. And, you know, if, if Trump does something like that in the White House, I guess we'll see you put that to the test. I don't know, but, um, it is amazing what people, um, the narratives people will will say, you know, and at the same time, a lot of the stuff here is that it, I've been hearing a lot of folks saying it's part of God's plan and that there have been, God has used imperfect vessels in the past. And, you know, King David was an adulterer, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, they can rant, rattle off this list of anointed leaders in the Bible who were nonetheless, um, you know, chosen by God and that this was part of Trump's plan. But then when I asked them whether Obama being elected was part of Trump's plan, there's a little bit more hemming and hawing. I think that was Freudian. You said Trump's Oh, plan. sorry. Oh, yeah. dear. God's oh, dear. God's <laughs> Freudian. <laughs> whether, whether it was part of God's plan to have Obama be elected president and there's a little bit more hemming and hawing or, you know, for every... For everything that God has, Satan has a very good counterfeit. You know, there's, there's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how people can rely on their, and I, I don't mean amazing in a snarkily way. I mean it in a social science way. Uh, it's amazing how people are able to come up with and justify their positions. And in this case, really going to great lengths to, to hold specific political views. And again, getting back to this, 
well, partisanship is your identity. You might even say you don't like the Republicans, even if you're a Republican. You might say you don't like the Democrats, but you're not acting like it. You're you want to you want your side to win. You, you might say, oh, I voted for Trump because it was way better than Clinton. You know, it's better than the alternative. But you were still thrilled that Clinton lost. It's still it might be about beating the other side rather than your team winning. But observationally, that's equivalent, you know. Robert Jones has been on the the show a few times and a, a great guy. Now, I don't pour over the demographic data like he does. And I'm no sociologist, you know, an esteemed place like Penn as you are. But I'm going to bet that if a Democrat gets in the White House, that statistic flips back for evangelicals. <laughs> That it goes back to 77% saying we need a spiritual moral person. I'm not, I'm not a huge betting man, but if I were, I'd put all the money on my pocket that that's. I think, I think you're probably, <laughs> I think you're, I think you're probably right. I think that you are absolutely right. So, I mean, at some point there will be another democratic president, uh, presumably. And so we'll, we'll find out, but I, I would, I would not bet against you. I will say that. <laughs> so you your work reinforces a, a narrative that's out there that's, I think, you know, there's a lot of empirical evidence that we're, again, in getting more and more tribal that and it's something that a lot of people are decrying, right? That, oh, that we could have more civility. Oh, that we were not. At, oh, that we were a little more nuanced, complex, able to tolerate some more ambiguity and dissonance and, and have a more have more openness in public conversation. Your work seems to to to, to again point out that we're not we're we're not we don't seem to be going that direction i mean is that going to depress you at the end of the day because i mean i think your work's compelling i mean so it's like i, I mean i again i you you offer your own sort of anticipated objections in the book and and again it's very compelling but does it depress you that you're right like <laughs> you know? yeah yeah i know that's interesting because again as a social scientist and i get this a lot you know from family members or people who don't don't know what i write big things i get is like oh are you going to run for office and things like that but one of them is that i'm trying to fix the world uh and while i would i would um love to do that i'm also not equipped to do that by any stretch of the imagination and as a social scientist i'm much more out to just describe the world that normative it's not it's not about normative what could or should be it's about about just what is let's get an accurate understanding of what's going on and and but in the conclusion I do talk a little bit about whether I think this kind of religious sorting is going to increase or decrease and I try to refrain from judgment and and kind of insert my own views on it but yeah of course it's really depressing I think that um in a lot of respects, religion is a wonderful thing that brings people together who might not otherwise spend time together. And now that might not be the case, you know, and, and if it's just another way to be divided in, in a society that's go growing increasingly, increasingly divided. And again, there's so many reasons for that. And, you know, the proliferation of social media and 24 hour news stations, like, right, there's lots of reasons that are not religiously based. But if all of these things, if religion used to be one of the things that could bring people together, if it's just, you know, becoming these echo chambers, then yeah, it's unfortunate that it's, it's becoming part of the problem, right? When in reality, it really could be part of the solution. Well, Michelle, I mean, I think, you know, T.S. Eliot said thick description is always preferable to explanations, right? Like, because th that helps you see what's really there. And I mean, your book is a beautiful piece of thick description from politics to the pews, how partisanship and the political environment shape religious identity. Anybody that's interested in religion or politics or current events uh, should should pick it up because it's totally readable. I mean, the chart for a for a, for an academic sociological text, it's incredibly readable, and it and I I enjoyed it a lot. And thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. That's the nicest thing you could say. I spent a lot of time trying to make it as readable as possible. Well, so you succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for talking with me about thanks it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Michelle for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, From Politics to the Pews. It's a timely, informative book on an incredibly relevant topic. 
Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.